welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Okay, if you have your Bibles, um, would you go and grab them and look up John chapter 3 with me? I've got my Bible here, and you can see that it is pretty worn. I have had this Bible for a number of years, and it's my uh, favorite one. It's the one I go to a lot, and so it's it's worn out, but... Uh, Boy, um, so many times that God has spoken uh, to my heart, reading his word, and I hope uh, that the Lord speaks to your heart uh, when you read his word too daily. And uh, this morning we look at a wonderful chapter in the Bible that uh, I think has some things for each of us uh, to go away with. And so looking up John 3 as we continue on in our uh, Gospel of John sermon series, Living Out Our Faith where we are. And uh, so John 3, this very important chapter, verses 1 to 21 today, and it says this. Now there was a a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus said. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying this, for you must be born again. For the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, as the Son of Man also must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. For this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3 truly is in an amazing chapter in all of the Bible. John 3.16, uh, probably one of the most memorized verses in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believe in him 
will not perish but have eternal life. This chapter uh, on salvation and, and God's heart and, and this verse right in the middle of it teaches us some incredible and foundational truths um, that we build our life and faith upon and try to teach our kids. For starters, the truth that God so loved the world that he sent his son. We have maybe heard this so often that we're no longer impacted by all that it really means. I mean, God doesn't hate the world. Let that sit in for a minute. He doesn't hate us in all of our sins. God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it. To save each person like you and me. Since our kids were really little, Carrie and I have tried to teach them about God and his love. We've tried to talk to our children about Jesus and, and how we can see God's love for us in Jesus and, and how he cared for people and what he said to them and how he took nails on a cross for them. And I think even as a child, you know, they grabbed some of those those thoughts and believed in them, you know. But this love God has for us is really the greatest thing in all of the world. It's the most powerful miracle and, and changer of the heart. For God loves you. He really does love you. I mean love you. He knows you and loves you. He loves your friends and the, the strangers that you meet at the grocery store. He loves them too and all the people of the world. From faraway places and, and those who don't have enough to eat or, or those who are hurting today. Our God actually cares about them and deeply loves them. And Carrie and I believe this, and, and you know, we've tried to teach this to our kids, not because we want them to, to feel good and be able to fall asleep or have good thoughts. No, we told them this because it is true. Because Jesus himself said it right here, and so we know it to be true. God so loved the world that he sent his son. This is a truth we can rest assured in, whether we are in trouble today or not living right or have regrets or sin in our life. God loves us, and he sent his son to save us. If we would just believe in him and open up our life to him, he will come in and he will cleanse us of all of that sin and he will heal the deep wounds of our heart. This is what is central to our scripture for this morning, that God's mission and his reason for sending Jesus came out of his love for you and me. That is what Jesus is saying, that love was the reason, it was the why, and that love is his very nature. This truth that God so loved the world 
was profound at the time that Jesus told it to Nicodemus. It would have been different than the kind of messages that Nicodemus would have preached in the synagogue or heard there. The focus of a Pharisee, you see, was on law and religion, and they, they probably taught that God was to be feared and and that he cared about Israel and the Messiah came to save them. But Jesus doesn't mention salvation from the law, but faith in him. And Jesus doesn't just speak about how God loves Israel, but that God loves the whole world, everybody, including their enemies, the Romans and the Greeks and the people they didn't think much of, like the Samaritans, even them. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to go to the ends of the earth with the message. Beyond their borders. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his son. This would have been a different message than Nicodemus would have ever heard. 1 John 4, 7 to 12 says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, the message here, the focus is not on us or on the law, but on God and on his love. The lo and his love is no little thing. It, it actually saves us. Many people grow up in this world and they, they never hear someone tell them, I love you. They never feel wanted or know what it means to be worried about or looked after. Many in this world feel unworthy of love or have never experienced unconditional love. In all of their sin or shame, many believe they are unlovable or that God could never love them. And so what Jesus is saying here is not just a little thing, not just a nice word that he throws around, love. No, love is the, the greatest thing. It is what many search their whole life for. Here Jesus is speaking about it to Nicodemus and telling him, God loves you. He loves this whole world that he sent his son. <coughs> In Romans 5.8, Paul even says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good man someone might die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At our lowest, at our worst. And not just us, but our neighbor and all those people in faraway places 
So the good news, you see, in the Christian message to the world, it begins here. It begins in the heart. Jesus taught Nicodemus that God so loved the world. And this truth becomes more amazing to me the older that I get. Because the older I get, the more I see how evil this world can be. And how the more I see how unfaithful I can be. And the more I start to realize what love really is, it's not just a, a feeling, but it is, it is giving yourself to someone. Love is, is, is more than a powerful emotion. It is a commitment. It is pain and suffering at times. <clears throat> I was talking to somebody this week about how it's easier to love the stranger uh, you know, then the the neighbor or family member who who you who is you know so well and has hurt you over and over, and you know the stranger, you know you don't know their sins, and so it's easier to show up and give them help and show them grace. But that person nearest to us, it can be tough because we know them, and maybe they have sinned against us, or we have watched them make mistakes over and over, and we're hurt by something maybe they have done. And so to love and forgive uh, gets harder the closer you are, in a way, to that person. God knows everything, you know, about you, and yet he loves you. So that is truly profound. The older I get, the more I see that. I think of the words of 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love is patient and kind, it's not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love always hopes and never fails. These are not easy things, you know. And so to think about this is that it's talking about God and how he feels about you and how he acts towards you. This is telling us how he loves us like this, you know, with patience and kindness and not self-seeking or easily angered, keeping no record of your wrongs. His love for you never fails. Are we able, you see, to, to truly grasp the love that he has for us? Are we able to love those around us in that same kind of love that he has given to us? You see, this is the core of God. This is the why he does what he does. It's because he loves you. And I don't think we can truly love the people around us until we first receive that love from God into our own hearts and know its truth. Then we maybe are able to give it back to someone else. His love reached out to save us. His love starts to heal the wounds in our heart and helps us become a brand new man or woman. Love is the key word in this chapter. Do you know that God loves you? But besides the word love, this chapter has another few key words in it. The word I mention next is the word believe. For God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believe in him shall not perish, <coughs> but have everlasting life. Believe. What does it mean to believe in him? Well, I've told you the story before of Charles Blondin, the tightrope walker who back in the mid-1800s did something that had never been done before. He was the first guy to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
Why did he do that? I don't know. He was crazy. <laughs> he was a daredevil. I don't know how many of you have been to Niagara Falls, but I have, and I have a fear of heights and water. And so I don't know why I went there, because it is the scariest place on earth for me. Uh, the power of that water rushing off of that cliff way down to the spray at the bottom. There was a, a railing, you know, and, and a lookout point, but I couldn't even get right up to it. It was scary for me. Well, Blondin was a performer, and, and so he had this idea, and he promoted it big, and it was, it was huge. There were people on both sides of the border cheering him on, huge crowds, newspapers everywhere, and he tightrope walked across this great chasm step by step to their cheers. And when he got to the Canadian side of the border, <coughs> excuse me, he, he worked up the crowd and he said to them, I am blonde and do you believe in me? Do you know that I can go back across these falls this time with someone on my shoulders? And, and boy, the crowd wanted to see that. And, and so they all cheered and they played along and they said, yes, we believe you can do that. And, and then Blondin looked at them and he said, which one of you will be that person to get upon my shoulders? And, and the crowd didn't expect that. And they all went silent. They didn't expect their belief to be tested. They were content to be observers watching. They did not want to be participants. And it has been reported that the crowd just went quiet and blonde and tried to persuade many to come forward and no one was willing to get upon his shoulders. And so eventually his manager stepped up and said he would and he climbed on the back of his friend and Blondin inched his way across Niagara Falls and safely to the other side. The point of the story is obvious. Who in the crowd really believed in him? You know, those who said it or the one guy who proved it by getting upon his shoulders? You see, believing is more than thinking something or even saying it. Believing in Jesus is more than the words. It is walking the walk. It is trusting our life in those key moments to the Son of God, our Savior. It's getting upon His shoulders. It's trusting Him with our sins and, and our eternity and, and our day. And it, and, it, and it happens all the time. It's believing in Him and His love and care for us. It's believing in Him when nobody else does at times when it costs you something, when it isn't popular, when it's Him or something else choosing Him. That's believing in him. In the book of James, it says, What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, go I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical condition, what good is it? In other words, do you really care about the person being warm and well fed? Or are you just saying it? In the same way, James says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And then James goes on to give one of the hardest examples ever of faith, that of Abraham being willing to trust God by laying his son Isaac down at the altar, and how Abraham was credited as righteous because he believed in God, and that belief when tested, he just obeyed. He trusted God, and that somehow God would save his son, and of course, God did. But I think 
of that decision, that true belief in God, that you would take your son up that hill and lay him on the altar. I mean, could I do that? You know, if the Lord asked me to trust him with, with what I loved most, what I cared about most, could I lay it down trusting in God? Do I really believe? Because true belief is not just something in our head. It's seen when tested, when in our life Jesus says, trust me, I got this, and you do. It's getting upon the shoulders and letting him take us across the chasm. It's trusting him with whatever happens in our life, you know, knowing that he's got us. It's like when the disciples were at the sea and the boat was being swamped and they woke Jesus and said, don't you care, we're going to drown. And Jesus got up and he, he spoke the word and it calmed the sea. And then he looked to his disciples and he said, where is your faith? Do you really believe in me? It's like the Israelites when they're in the desert and no matter all the signs and miracles they had already seen coming out of Egypt, still in the moment they forget God. And when they get to the edge of the promised land and God says, I'm going to give you that land, they don't believe that he can and so they don't enter. It's when David was the only one willing to stand up before Goliath. It's when Stephen was being threatened with death, and yet he still didn't back down because he knew where he was going. It's like Paul when he's thrown into prison for two years, but he believed God must have a reason for him to be there. If he's there, he wasn't shaken. What about us? Do we really believe in him? Some days, my faith is strong, but I think we're always growing in belief, tested and challenged to truly trust in him. I think of the father who, who came to Jesus to heal his son. And, and he said to the Lord, if you can do anything, please help. <coughs> and Jesus said, if everything is possible for him who believes. And the father so honestly responded back, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. And that is the us in many situations. I am comforted in the Bible that there's stories of of people learning how to believe, that they're not all perfect in their belief. For example, Peter, he loved the Lord. He really did. He believed in the Lord. But he was weak at times, like we all can be. For like when Jesus told Peter that he would deny the Lord three times, Peter said, never, Lord, I'll never do that. But hours later, Peter denies him three times. And you can say that Peter's faith failed in that moment, and it did. But that doesn't mean that God was done with him. <coughs> Excuse me. For after the resurrection, who does Jesus come to and seek out again? It's Peter. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. But the word believe, you see, is so powerful for us. To truly believe is when we get to see God at work in the miracles in our life and salvation and we're called to truly believe and trust our life to Jesus Christ. I don't know, maybe you, you didn't get on the shoulders of the Lord this past week like you could have. It's okay. Get on the shoulders of him today. Maybe you didn't stand before the giant but hid in the trenches at some point. That's okay. Go stand before the giant today. Maybe you didn't love your neighbor do what the Lord called you to do yesterday. It's okay. 
love your neighbor today. And if you can't today, then tomorrow. What I mean is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus anymore. And we don't just fall into the regret or wallow in our past, but we repent and we believe in him today. That's what he wants. So love is a key word in this chapter. Believe, or another key word. Another key word is born again. Jesus said in John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus means by this. He says to Jesus, how does a person go back into the belly of his mother? And Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, they can't enter or see the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean? What Jesus is saying is that every person born on this planet was born of the flesh. All of us. We all have a mom and a dad and we came into this world from our mother's belly. And we look like our parents and sometimes we act like our parents. We're born into this world and we have its DNA all over us. And the Bible says we're born with a sinful nature. Our problem isn't just that we sin. It is that we're born with a sinful nature. We are born this way. The whole question, you know, of nature versus nurture. Why does a person do what they do? Were they born that way or did culture and how they were raised make that person the way they are? Science and sociology try to understand why people do what they do. Well, Jesus is kind of speaking to it here. He's saying flesh always gives birth to flesh. You're a product of Adam. You're a product of the world and your parents and ancestors and culture. It's all in you, and it's, it's, it's the reason you are the way you are. Both nature and nurture are at play in everybody. We're born sinners, and we think and act like the world around us. And so even the people that we think of as good people, well, they may be a little nicer and kinder and more disciplined than the rest, but even they are still born into this world and have a sinful nature. And compared to God, well, not even close. This is why everyone needs Jesus, he's saying. Not just the murderer or the adulterer, but every one of us. We all need Jesus because we're all born with a sinful nature. We're born bent, you know. We're born selfish and have to be told not to hit our sister. We're born to want more than we're given and never be content. We're born with violence and raised to pursue and live for things other than God. Flesh always... Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's Sermon Podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Okay, if you have your Bibles, um, would you go and grab them and look up John chapter 3 with me? I've got my Bible here, and you can see that it is pretty worn. I have had this Bible for a number of years, and it's my uh, favorite one. It's the one I go to a lot, and so it's it's worn out, but... Uh, Boy, um, so many times that God has spoken uh, to my heart reading his word, and I hope uh, that the Lord speaks to your heart uh, when you read his word too daily. And uh, this morning we look at a wonderful chapter in the Bible that uh, I think has some things for each of us uh, to go away with. And so looking up John 3 as we continue on in our uh, Gospel of John sermon series, Living Out Our Faith where we are. And uh, so John 3, this very important chapter, verses 1 to 21 today, and it says this. Now there was a a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night 
And he said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus said. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying this, for you must be born again. For the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Son of Man also must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. For this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it might be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3 truly is in an amazing chapter in all of the Bible. John 3, 16, uh, probably one of the most memorized verses in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. This chapter uh, on salvation and, and God's heart and, and this verse right in the middle of it teaches us some incredible and foundational truths um, that we build our life and faith upon and try to teach our kids. For starters, the truth that God so loved the world that he sent his son. We have maybe heard this so often that we're no longer impacted by all that it really means. I mean, God doesn't hate the world. Let that sit in for a minute. He doesn't hate us in all of our sins. God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it, to save each person like you and me. Since our kids were really little, Carrie and I have tried to teach them about God and his love. We've tried to talk to our children about Jesus and, and how we can see God's love for us 
in Jesus and and how he cared for people and what he said to them and how he took nails on a cross for them. And I think even as a child, you know, they grabbed some of those, those thoughts and believed in them, you know. But this love God has for us is really the greatest thing in all of the world. It's the most powerful miracle and and changer of the heart. For God loves you. He really does love you. I mean love you. He knows you and loves you. He loves your friends and the, the strangers that you meet at the grocery store. He loves them too and all the people of the world from faraway places and, and those who don't have enough to eat or, or those who are hurting today. Our God actually cares about them and deeply loves them. And Carrie and I believe this. And, and you know, we've tried to teach this to our kids, not because we want them to to feel good and be able to fall asleep or have good thoughts. No, we told them this because it is true. Because Jesus himself said it right here and so we know it to be true. God so loved the world that he sent his son. This is a truth we can rest assured in whether we are in trouble today or not living right or have regrets or sin in our life. God loves us and he sent his son to save us. If we would just believe in him and open up our life to him, he will come in and he will cleanse us of all of that sin and he will heal the deep wounds of our heart. This is what is central to our scripture for this morning, that God's mission and his reason for sending Jesus came out of his love for you and me. That is what Jesus is saying, that love was the reason, it was the why, and that love is his very nature. This truth that God so loved the world was profound at the time that Jesus told it to Nicodemus. It would have been different than the kind of messages that Nicodemus would have preached in the synagogue or heard there. The focus of a Pharisee, you see, was on law and religion, and they they probably taught that God was to be feared and And that he cared about Israel and the Messiah came to save them. But Jesus doesn't mention salvation from the law, but faith in him. And Jesus doesn't just speak about how God loves Israel, but that God loves the whole world, everybody, including their enemies, the Romans and the Greeks and the people they didn't think much of, like the Samaritans, even them. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to go to the ends of the earth with the message, beyond their borders. Why? Because God so loved the world. That he sent his son. This would have been a different message than Nicodemus would have ever heard. 1 John 4, 7 to 12 says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. 
Because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, the message here, the focus is not on us or on the law, but on God and on his love. The lo and his love is no little thing. It, it actually saves us. Many people grow up in this world and they, they never hear someone tell them, I love you. They never feel wanted or know what it means to be worried about or looked after. Many in this world feel unworthy of love or have never experienced unconditional love. In all of their sin or shame, many believe they are unlovable or that God could never love them. And so what Jesus is saying here is not just a little thing, not just a nice word that he throws around, love. No, love is the, the greatest thing. It is what many search their whole life for. Here Jesus is speaking about it to Nicodemus and telling him, God loves you. He loves this whole world that he sent his son. <coughs> In Romans 5.8, Paul even says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good man someone might die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At our lowest, at our worst. And not just us, but our neighbor and all those people in faraway places so the good news, you see, in the Christian message to the world, it begins here. It begins in the heart. Jesus taught Nicodemus that God so loved the world. And this truth becomes more amazing to me the older that I get. Because the older I get, the more I see how evil this world can be. And how the more I see how unfaithful I can be. And the more I start to realize what love really is, it's not just a, a feeling, but it is, it is giving yourself to someone. Love is, is, is more than a powerful emotion. It is a commitment. It is pain and suffering at times. <clears throat> I was talking to somebody this week about how it's easier to love the stranger uh, you know, then the the neighbor or family member who who you who is you know so well and has hurt you over and over, and you know the stranger, you know you don't know their sins, and so it's easier to show up and give them help and show them grace. But that person nearest to us, it can be tough because we know them, and maybe they have sinned against us, or we have watched them make mistakes over and over, and we're hurt by something maybe they have done. And so to love and forgive uh, gets harder the closer you are in a way to that person. God knows everything 
you know, about you, and yet he loves you. So that is truly profound. The older I get, the more I see that. I think of the words of 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love is patient and kind. It's not self-seeking or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love always hopes and never fails. These are not easy things, you know. And so to think about this is that it's talking about God and how he feels about you. And how he acts towards you. This is telling us how he loves us like this, you know, with patience and kindness and not self-seeking or easily angered, keeping no record of your wrongs. His love for you never fails. Are we able, you see, to, to truly grasp the love that he has for us? Are we able to love those around us in that same kind of love that he has given to us? You see, this is the core of God. This is the why he does what he does. It's because he loves you. And I don't think we can truly love the people around us until we first receive that love from God into our own hearts and know its truth. Then we maybe are able to give it back to someone else. His love reached out. To save us. His love starts to heal the wounds in our heart and helps us become a brand new man or woman. Love is the key word in this chapter. Do you know that God loves you? But besides the word love, this chapter has another few key words in it. The word I mention next is the word believe. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believe in him shall not perish, <coughs> but have everlasting life. Believe. What does it mean to believe in him? Well, I've told you the story before of Charles Blondin, the tightrope walker who back in the mid-1800s did something that had never been done before. He was the first guy to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Why did he do that? I don't know. He was crazy. <laughs> he was a daredevil. I don't know how many of you have been to Niagara Falls, but I have, and I have a fear of heights and water, and so I don't know why I went there, because it is the scariest place on earth for me. Uh, the power of that water rushing off of that cliff way down to the spray at the bottom. There was a, a railing, you know, and, and a lookout point, but I couldn't even get right up to it. It was scary for me. Well, Blondin was a performer. And, and so he had this idea, and he promoted it big, and it was, it was huge. There were people on both sides of the border cheering him on, huge crowds, newspapers everywhere, and he tightrope walked across this great chasm step by step to their cheers. And when he got to the Canadian side of the border, <coughs> excuse me, he, he worked up the crowd, and he said to them, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? Do you know that I can go back across these falls, this time with someone on my shoulders? And, and boy, the crowd wanted to see that. And, and so they all cheered and they played along and they said, yes, we believe you can do that. And, and then Blondin looked at them and he said, which one of you will be that person to get upon my shoulders? And, and, and the crowd didn't expect that. And they all went silent. They didn't expect their belief to be tested. 
they were content to be observers watching. They did not want to be participants. And it has been reported that the crowd just went quiet and blonde and tried to persuade many to come forward and no one was willing to get upon his shoulders. And so eventually his manager stepped up and said he would and he climbed on the back of his friend and Blondin inched his way across Niagara Falls and safely to the other side. The point of the story is obvious. Who in the crowd really believed in him? You know, those who said it or the one guy who proved it by getting upon his shoulders. You see, believing is more than thinking something or even saying it. Believing in Jesus is more than the words. It is walking the walk. It is trusting our life in those key moments to the Son of God, our Savior. It's getting upon His shoulders. It's trusting Him with our sins and, and our eternity and, and our day. And it, and, it, and it happens all the time. It's believing in Him and His love and care for us. It's believing in Him when nobody else does at times when it costs you something, when it isn't popular, when it's him or something else choosing him, that's believing in him. In the book of James, it says, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, go I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical condition, what good is it? In other words, do you really care about the person being warm and well-fed? Or are you just saying it? In the same way, James says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. And then James goes on to give one of the hardest examples ever of faith, that of Abraham being willing to trust God by laying his son Isaac down at the altar and how Abraham was credited as righteous because he believed in God, and that belief when tested, he just obeyed. He trusted God, and that somehow God would save his son, and of course God did. But I think of that decision, that true belief in God, that you would take your son up that hill and lay him on the altar. I mean, could I do that? You know, if the Lord asked me to trust him with, with what I loved most, what I cared about most, could I lay it down trusting in God, do I really believe? Because true belief is not just something in our head. It's seen when tested, when in our life, Jesus says, trust me, I got this. And you do. It's getting upon the shoulders and letting him take us across the chasm. It, it's trusting him with whatever happens in our life. You know, knowing that he's got us. It's like when the disciples were at the sea and the boat was being swamped and they woke Jesus and said, don't you care, we're going to drown. And Jesus got up and he, he spoke the word and it calmed the sea. And then he looked to his disciples and he said, where is your faith? Do you really believe in me? It's like the Israelites when they're in the desert and no matter all the signs and miracles they had already seen coming out of Egypt, still in the moment, they forget God. And when they get to the edge of the promised land and God says, I'm going to give you that land, they don't believe that he can, and so they don't enter. It's when David was the only one willing to stand up before Goliath. It's when Stephen was being threatened with death, and yet he still didn't back down because he knew where he was going. 
It's like Paul when he's thrown into prison for two years. But he believed God must have a reason for him to be there if he's there. He wasn't shaken. What about us? Do we really believe in him? Some days my faith is strong. But I think we're always growing in belief, tested and challenged to truly trust in him. I think of the father who, who came to Jesus to heal his son. And, and he said to the Lord, if you can do anything, please help. <coughs> and Jesus said, if everything is possible for him who believes. And the father so honestly responded back, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. And that is the us in many situations. I am comforted in the Bible that there's stories of of people learning how to believe, that they're not all perfect in their belief. For example, Peter, he loved the Lord. He really did. He believed in the Lord. But he was weak at times, like we all can be. For like when Jesus told Peter that he would deny the Lord three times, Peter said, never, Lord, I'll never do that. But hours later, Peter denies him three times. And you can say that Peter's faith failed in that moment, and it did. But that doesn't mean that God was done with him. <coughs> Excuse me. For after the resurrection, who does Jesus come to and seek out again? It's Peter. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. But the word believe, you see, is so powerful for us. To truly believe is when we get to see God at work in the miracles in our life and salvation and we're called to truly believe and trust our life to Jesus Christ. I don't know, maybe you, you didn't get on the shoulders of the Lord this past week like you could have. It's okay. Get on the shoulders of him today. Maybe you didn't stand before the giant but hid in the trenches at some point. That's okay. Go stand before the giant today. Maybe you didn't love your neighbor do what the Lord called you to do yesterday. It's okay. Love your neighbor today. And if you can't today, then tomorrow. What I mean is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus anymore. And we don't just fall into the regret or wallow in our past, but we repent and we believe in him today. That's what he wants. So love is a key word in this chapter. Believe, or another key word, Another key word is born again. Jesus said in John 3, 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus means by this. He says to Jesus, how does a person go back into the belly of his mother? And Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Unless a person is born of water and spirit, they can't enter or see the kingdom of God. What does Jesus mean? What Jesus is saying is that every person born on this planet was born of the flesh. All of us. We all have a mom and a dad and we came into this world from our mother's belly. And we look like our parents and sometimes we act like our parents. We're born into this world and we have its DNA all over us. And the Bible says we're born with a sinful nature. Our problem isn't just that we sin. It is that we're born with a sinful nature. We are born this way. 
the whole question, you know, of nature versus nurture. Why does a person do what they do? Were they born that way or did culture and how they were raised make that person the way they are? Science and sociology try to understand why people do what they do. Well, Jesus is kind of speaking to it here. He's saying flesh always gives birth to flesh. You're a product of Adam. You're a product of the world and your parents and ancestors and culture. It's all in you, and it's, it's, it's the reason you are the way you are. Both nature and nurture are at play in everybody. We're born sinners, and we think and act like the world around us. And so even the people that we think of as good people, well, they may be a little nicer and kinder and more disciplined than the rest, but even they are still born into this world and have a sinful nature. And compared to God, well, not even close. This is why everyone needs Jesus, he's saying. Not just the murderer or the adulterer, but every one of us. We all need Jesus because we're all born with a sinful nature. We're born bent, you know. We're born selfish and have to be told not to hit our sister. We're born to want more than we're given and never be content. We're born with violence and raised to pursue and live for things other than God. Flesh always gives birth to flesh. We're born and nurtured in this sinful world. It's in us. We are not good. We're not like God, even if we think that we're better than others. And so that nature is in us, and it's always in conflict with God and his will. And that is the human struggle. And that is why we don't just do what we want to do or what we feel or what we think is right or what we reason because our reasoning is flawed. It is affected by our sinful nature and what we feel at times is just wrong. Even when we think it's so right, what we see is good is actually bad. We can't be trusted. We are broken and bent. Our heart is easily deceived and follows its own desires. It's our sinful nature. It doesn't mean we're not loved by God or that we're not created by God, but we just got to realize we're broken. We're not as we should be, any of us. We're born with a sinful nature. Flesh always gives birth to flesh. And so what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that to truly know God and see God and be like God, you got to be born again. You got to be born from above, born of the Spirit that will now shape you and form you and renew your mind and create in you a new heart. For only the Spirit can give birth to Spirit. Only God working on the inside of a person can make them brand new. Only the Lord can redeem his fallen, our fallen nature. Only he can give us life. You see, we're born with one nature and we need a whole new one. No longer Adam's seed, but now Christ in us, our only hope of righteousness. Jesus said, you got to be born again. There's no other way. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He's talking about this. In the Greek, born again is the same as born from above. You got to give your life to Jesus. The prophets foretold this. In Ezekiel, it speaks of the water and the Spirit. God says in Ezekiel 36, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from your impurities and your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and laws. Jesus is talking about this. 
He came to do this. He came to give them life. And you know, I think it's easier for a person whose life is an absolute mess and they're facing all these struggles, it's easier for that person to surrender their life to Christ because they know they've messed it up so bad. But it's harder for the successful person the wealthy person, the good person, the religious person like Nicodemus was who thought that he was fine and holy and good, it's tough for them to let go of their life and understanding and accept Christ fully in as Lord. It's hard for them and maybe even for us to realize we got to lose our life. We got to let it go. We can't just add some little bits of religion or pray once in a while, but we're basically good. No, we don't need just a little more Jesus. We got to die completely to ourselves so that we might now live completely in him. We got to let go of who we are in order to find out who he is. You got to be born again. Two more quick little words here from this chapter. The first is wind. Jesus compares the spirit to the wind. He says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So too, he said, with the spirit. And the Greek word for spirit is the same word for wind or breath. And so Jesus is playing on words, and he's saying that we can't predict or see where the wind is coming from. So too, the spirit of God moves as he wills. He's got a plan, and we're not in control. He is. He does what he knows is best for us and what he wills to happen in this world. And he's always moving in our midst. And in a way, Jesus is telling this guy, Nicodemus, who's used to being in control and very rigid and traditional, and he's, you know, he's mastered the game plan, and, and he's saying, man, it's God who's going to call the shots, and you got to go where he moves. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisee, God is is not going to follow your plans, but his. Are you willing to go where the wind is blowing? Are you willing to go where he's taking you? At times, it's going to surprise you. He will move, and you don't know where he's coming from or going, but you just got to go with God. And this is going to be tough for Nicodemus. It's going to mean letting go of some of the traditions and things that he's comfortable with in order to see and experience the new things that God is doing. Jesus says the wind blows wherever it pleases. Are you willing to go wherever God goes? And then lastly, I wanted to end this sermon with the words light and darkness. And it's a really solemn end to this beautiful chapter about God's love and life. Jesus ends his time with Nicodemus sharing the reality that many are going to reject him and life. Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's kind of a sad truth that Jesus shares here. He's saying to them, I am offering everybody life and salvation and fellowship with God in eternity, but many are going to love money more than that or their drink or their sin or whatever, and they're going to stay in the darkness and not come into the light. And this may be a surprise to us at times, but it is not to God. He knows the heart. He knows that even though, you know, he loves them, they're going to reject him still. Even though he offers them forgiveness and freedom and a brand new life that was going to be filled with so much joy and peace for them if they would just accept it, he knows that many of them won't, that they will choose life in the darkness and they will avoid the light. 
The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6.12 that we all must put on the full armor of God each day to take our stand against the devil's schemes because he said our true battle is not really against one another. It's against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. Paul was speaking of this internal battle, this spiritual battle that every person faces, good versus evil, both wanting to take control of our soul. He's talking about temptation and and even sees it in his own heart. He wants to do good, but evil is always right there beside him, trying to, to get him to do the opposite. He feels that tension. He knows that daily struggle, the battle between light and darkness. And Jesus is saying that he is the light, and he's coming to the world to save it, not to condemn the world. And yet people won't be saved. They won't come into the light where he is. They won't admit their sin and be free of it. They won't accept Christ and the eternal life that he can bring. They will choose to walk in darkness and continue to do what is evil. And Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come into light for fear of being exposed. You know, the longer we walk in darkness, the more we will hate the light. You'll begin to hate God. And Jesus, who came to rescue you, instead of love him and see him for who he is, the darkness will affect you. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. And I'm starting to recognize that the sin and the temptations, you know, in life, they're never just about that thing. That's not the main point. The main point is that the devil is using that particular thing to try to pull you away from the heart of God and cause you to hate the one who actually came to save you and to pull you away from people trying to help you where you begin to avoid church and God and prayer and everything and allow the darkness to slowly kill your soul. Sin pulls you into the darkness while Jesus is calling you to come into the light. 1 John 1.5 says, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. <clears throat> if we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. <clears throat> but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. I think Jesus ends with this because he can see right into the heart of Nicodemus. He knows and he loves Nicodemus. And I think it's his grace that is inviting this man to come into the light. Did you know, I don't know if you know this, I end with this, is that Nicodemus does come to faith in Christ eventually. We don't hear about him <clears throat> until the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 19 when he appears at the foot of the cross along with Joseph of Arimathea. These two Pharisees now openly putting their faith in Jesus. They ask for Pilate. They ask Pilate for Jesus' body after he dies on the cross there. Nicodemus brings the myrrh to anoint him, and Joseph of Arimathea gives him the tomb. And so it is this great moment when these two Pharisees are showing their love for Jesus. And three days later, of course, he rises from the dead. And it is believed those two are among the 120. My questions I leave with you today are do you believe in Jesus? I mean, truly. Believe in him. Trust him. Do you know that God so loved the world and he loves you and he sent his son? Do you believe that he, he went to that cross and that upon it you have the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe in the new birth and the Holy Spirit that would come to live inside of you and make you brand new 
And will you now come into the light, letting go of the deeds of the darkness, trusting in his blood to save you and his grace for you every day? He is for you, and he loves you. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all Bethlehem Covenant Church's ministries and events, head to bccwaverly.org.